Welcome to the great work of your life. You cannot become something new and still do things the same way you've always done them. If you want different results, you have to do things differently. We have to make a decision to sacrifice something that we've been holding on to, something that may have served us at an earlier stage in our lives, but now is keeping us from growing. My name is Reverend Ian Widemar, and this sermon is part of a series called What Has to Die in Order for You to Be Reborn? Every day of our lives, we encounter character-defining moments, both small and large. And what you do every day becomes what you have done. The shape of our character determines our life's trajectory. By choosing to engage with these challenges, we begin to grasp the importance of sacrifice and commitment. This process is not only personal, it is also communal, impacting a larger transformation in humanity. After you listen, we invite you to go online at community.mvuc.org to share your insights and meet other spiritual seekers like you who are devoted to building a wiser, more nurturing world. You will also find a variety of resources designed to help you lean into your life's purpose. Join us at community.mvuc.org. Uh, Last week, the Supreme Court of the United States began to hear oral arguments regarding the validity of a ruling by the Colorado Supreme Court banning Donald Trump from the ballot due to his participation in a failed coup on January 6, 2021. And judging by the tenor of the arguments and the comments made by the conservatives on the court, pundits have surmised that the ruling will be overturned and that Donald Trump will be allowed to assume the Republican nomination despite being a traitor. Now, I'm not sure that we should be surprised. Trump installed three of the six conservatives and the other three are radicals, which doesn't mean that they are stupid. Brent Kavanaugh laid out a seemingly uh, logical loophole for the court to fall through uh, in its effort to undermine democracy by appealing to the liberal value of good governance, sparring with the attorneys seeking to bar Trump from the ballot, Kavanaugh responded, your position has the effect of disenfranchising voters to a significant degree, as if conservatives have ever cared about enfranchising voters. That's not one of their values, not from the moment when they wrote the three-fifths compromise and gave a disproportionate representation to slave states in the House of Representatives at the Constitutional Convention to to the Jim Crow literacy tests to uh, barring felons from the right to vote while simultaneously enacting laws that specifically targeted at-risk communities. Uh, Conservatives hate voter access, so it is... Uh, what do you call that kind of argument? Uh, Disingenuous. Let's just call it disingenuous. But they love to use our values against us because it works really well. 
We are easily manipulated by that. It gives the illusion that they are playing the same game that we are when they are not. And we walk around wondering, how did we get to this point in history without realizing that we are playing by rules that are not the rules of the game? The rules have changed, and we have just refused to admit it because that would mean we'd have to behave differently, and we don't really want to behave differently. We really enjoy pretending that the social contract still exists and that our values matter. It doesn't, and they don't. The social contract under liberals and progressives is understood, it, uh, understood as uh, rooted in a fundamental moral commitment to uphold human dignity and to address the suffering of marginalized groups. It is not merely a rational calculation. It is a call to empathy and to love. It is an acknowledgement that social inequalities exist and have existed since the founding of this nation. And it is our responsibility as members of a healthy democracy to correct these inequalities and to improve the conditions of the least advantaged in society. In the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, we achieved the apex of these values being shared nationally, but they have been under assault for the last 50 years as the Christian nationalists rebranded themselves in order to unravel this nascent but promising reimagination of what it could mean to be an American. Now, I've been recently uh, going down a rabbit hole, this podcast rabbit hole, uh, about Jerry Falwell, the, the founder of the Moral Majority and Liberty University. And I was surprised uh, to learn that the awakening of evangelical activism in the 70s was not initially animated by the Roe versus Wade decision in 1973. What initially upset these southern white so-called Christians uh, was integration. The government was forcing schools to provide equal access in, and funding, and in response, evangelicals created private academies cloaked under the banner of Christianity that allowed them to continue segregation. Falwell opened Lynchburg Christian Academy in 1967 as a segregationist school and then developed it as a ministry of his Thomas Road Baptist Church. Liberty University was founded in 1971, the same year that the IRS challenged the tax-exempt status of Bob Jones University for its exclusion of black applicants. The story that evangelicals love to tell is that they entered politics due to their outrage over Roe, but Jerry Falwell did not preach his first anti-choice sermon until 1978. But abortion is a much better cover for their vengeance on the government than, you know, for enforcing equality than uh, championing white supremacy. The moral majority went on to, be, to have a massive political uh, impact. They were a major player that got Ronald Reagan elected. They got him elected over the Baptist Sunday school teacher, Jimmy Carter. 
because Carter favored integration, civil rights, and universal health care. Ronald Reagan continued the effort to undermine the social contract by deregulating media ownership and abandoning the fairness doctrine which mandated that broadcast networks had to allow for contrasting views on issues of public importance as a condition for getting their broadcasting license renewed. Uh, And this gave us the megalodon called Fox News that ate everything in sight. And now we all know that Fox News has enjoyed a massive uh, viewership and it's a united thinking on the right, but it has also had a tangible impact on our lives. A study from Emory University political scientist Gregory Martin and Stanford uh, economist Ali Urukolgu quantified the actual value of Fox News on Republican presidential candidates in 2004 and 2008, estimating that George Bush the minor, his share of the vote would have been 3.59 points lower in 2004, meaning John Kerry would have won. And John McCain's share would have been 6.3 points lower if not for Fox News, meaning Barack Obama his victory would have been a landslide with 60% of the vote. Now, this isn't to say that the religious right hasn't been deeply invested in silencing women's voices, denying access to power and access to birth control. Of course they have been, and they are. The religious right is misogynistic. It's just that we've allowed them to participate to perpetuate a narrative that captures a a moral position, right? The defense of the life of the unborn has been used as a wedge to unravel the social contract. It took Jerry Falwell five years to realize how to mobilize people around abortion, but he'd been deep in the trenches trying to disenfranchise black people, women, and queer people for well over a decade at that point. The gains that had been made by the political activists in the 60s and the 70s were made possible by an uncompromising dedication to fairness and equality. There was a resoluteness that characterized the various movements, a resoluteness that I don't think really exists today. The religious right may tell themselves a fiction about where their origin story comes from, but we also tell ourselves a fiction that the ballot box created the changes in the social contract and not that that it was our unwillingness to compromise for anything less than equality. And the Christian nationalists have escalated tensions and polarized the social landscape. And in doing so, progressives have assumed a passive stance in hopes of maintaining peace and dialogue. We think there is a value in reaching across the aisle to find compromise. We practically make our leaders say this when we do not demand reciprocity. In fact, the Christian terrorist movement in America demands that they don't. Compromise gets you removed from power because, if you, because you don't compromise with the enemy. That's their position. And we are the enemy. But we want to pretend like appeasement will work. 
It didn't work with Neville Chamberlain. With Hitler, for those of you who don't know who that is. <laughs> it didn't work with Neville Chamberlain. And it won't work now. They have told us who they are. Why don't we believe them? And I don't think this really has to do with them at all. I think a lot of it has to do with us. We like to believe that we are uh, tolerant people and that through dialogue we can convince folks who don't agree with us that equality for all people is better. Many of us have MAGA people in our families and, and we see good sides to them. Right? They love our kids. They can be funny sometimes. Not as funny as us, but, you know, sometimes. You know, they show up sometimes when we need help. All of that's true. Not every MAGA person is a sociopath. But we're clinging to this idea that it's just an issue of education. Right? If only we can just show them the proof. It's not. Education teaches you facts, but it cannot teach you virtues. And on some level, we know this, but we don't want to give up on the performative character that we play as a tolerant person. That's really important to us, to be perceived as tolerant. Somewhere, the uncompromising values of the, of the 1960s and 70s and 80s, right? Remember ACT UP? Who remembers ACT UP? Totally, they were like, no, this is, we're not doing any, we are winning. And they did. Somewhere, it became gauche to do that. And now, tolerance, avoiding conflict, maintaining peace, creating dialogue came to define us. And, and we don't want to give it up, even as we watch the Supreme Court signal that it's going to allow a seditionist to run for president. Oh, they were appointed by legal means. Better luck next time. There won't be a next time. Let me rephrase that. If we continue on the course we are on, the course that values decorum and respectability, there won't be a next time. The religious right uses those values against us because we are so self-involved and we like to be seen as reasonable, rational people that we get outplayed into a corner because we think the game is played by a rule of fairness. No. The game is, are you going to fight? That's the game. Are you going to fight? Are we willing to sacrifice the image we like to have of ourselves as kind, you know, literate folks, do the crossword, believe in education, we're afraid of angering them any more than we already have and risking an even bigger backlash. You know, the white walkers are over the wall 
and we're trying to figure out how to negotiate with them down in Westeros, right? For those of you who watched Game of Thrones. White Walkers aren't so bad. They're people. It's time to give up the illusion that they are going to stop at the White House and stop at the Supreme Court. They were screaming states' rights until Roe got overturned, and then they were like, we're taking abortion rights everywhere. Immediately they said that. Lindsey Graham said that like a week after Roe. States' rights until... (laughs) Until now, right? It wasn't about government overreach. It's because they don't believe that black people, queer people, and women are equals. And they don't want to empower them. Soon state rights is not going to mean anything anywhere. Abortion is going to be illegal everywhere. Teaching history that does not support white supremacy is going to be illegal everywhere. Same-sex marriage, I'm sorry. That's going to be illegal. It will be taken away. Unless we give up the image of ourselves as reasonable people and learn how to fight. You, think, you may think this is a political sermon. This is not a political sermon. This is about who are we? This is Arjuna in the chariot deciding, like, do I get up and fight? What do I do? Yeah, we get up and fight. We have dharma. Not because, not because I am going to, I'm going to be the last one to lose. So I have to do it because there are going to be people who lose before me. It's not for me. It's not for you. We're all going to be the last ones to lose. We're pretty privileged. Everyone, if you made it into this room, you're pretty privileged. Putting, you know, a bumper sticker on our car saying, well-behaved women rarely makes history does not make our Priuses cooler. And it's not any indication that we misbehave. If anything, it's performative. Giving the impression that we're fighters when we're really not. And I know some of you are going to come up afterwards and be like, I was a fighter. I'm great. I'm talking about the collective we, right? So not the I. I'm talking about we as a people. And also the we that's not here. That's who we really need to be fighting for. This is about the social contract that defends the most vulnerable among us. We are walking into a dictatorship because collectively we are letting it happen. And we've got to become more authentic as a people. I don't care if there's a backlash by the right wing. Why would I care if a racist, misogynistic movement thinks about me? I don't care. I don't care that the the Bible says, I don't care, I don't believe in your Bible. Which is not to invalidate it as a text. I just, like, that doesn't work on me. I don't follow it. And I didn't unintentionally leave out homophobia. I just don't, I don't love that word because I feel like it's obscure. They don't, 
They don't, they're, they don't homophobia, fear of gay people. They don't fear gay people. They don't respect gay people. And I don't think, they don't think gay people should have any rights. That's not fear. They hate gay people. They kill gay people. It's not because they're afraid. We're in this really unique geographic location, and I don't mean being next to D.C. I don't even mean being next to the slave plantation that lends its name to the church. I mean, we're close to the Lorton Prison in Okaquan. And it's been turned into an arts facility, but if you haven't made it down there, that is hallowed ground. It's hallowed ground. This is where the suffragists from the National Women's Party were imprisoned for protesting out in front of the White House when they were blocking traffic while seeking the right to vote. And they were led by misbehaving women like Alice Paul and Lucy Burns. And the NWP had split from the more established National American Women's Suffragists Association who, were, who they just saw as moving too slowly and, and wanting to compromise too much. So the NWP engaged in direct action which got them labeled as unladylike, even by their peers. But they had stopped caring whether you called them unladylike. They'd stop caring because they knew that the right to vote meant liberation, and that was more important than what someone thought about them. And at one point, President Wilson had had enough of the protesters, so he sent them to Lorton, and I'm quoting the National Park Service here, where they sent them to Lorton where they were forced to strip naked, sprayed with water, given rough and dirty uniforms. The wardens blocked them from contacting their families. They, they crowded into dirty, freezing cells. The beans and hominy rice all had worms in it. And they... They were arguing that they were political prisoners, so they went on a hunger strike. And after several days, the the guards force-fed them by holding them down and shoving tubes up their noses and down their throats and pumped raw eggs into them. And they did not stop because the right to vote was about liberation. And on the orders of the prison warden, W.H. Whitaker... Workhouse guards brutalized them. They, they handcuffed Lucy Burns in her cell with her hands over her head, forcing her to stand overnight. They pushed Dora Lewis so hard that her head smashed into an iron bed frame, knocking her unconscious. Despite prisoners' pleas, the guards refused to call a doctor. 20-year-old Dorothy Day, who had later launched the Catholic worker movement, was lifted twice by guards and slammed down over a metal bench. I thought she was tough before I learned that. I don't mean to diminish the point of the bumper sticker, right? I actually really like that bumper sticker. It makes me smile every time I see it. It's just that misbehaving is, it can be brutal. So I'm sympathetic to our preference for compromise and decorum and dialogue, truly, I would much rather be uh, engaging in dialogue than getting slammed down over a metal bench. 
But you can't be in dialogue with people who don't believe in dialogue. Neville Chamberlain found out the hard way. So I suspect that the Supreme Court will find a way to invalidate the Colorado ruling and allow a seditionist to, to run for president because their belief in inequality and exclusion is stronger than their belief in the law. And Donald Trump has already told us what he plans to do on day one. And when someone tells you what they, who they are, you should believe them. The more important question is what do we tell people about us? Who do we say we are? If we say we believe in social equality and justice, then we need to enforce that. And if we don't want to enforce that, we need to stop saying we believe in that. Either way, a sacrifice has to be made. If we want to be authentic people, we need to sacrifice our vision of ourselves as people who hold the line if we don't hold the line. Or we need to sacrifice our decorum and good behavior and our grasping onto being seen as people with good character, or we've already lost. They will not stop at the White House. They will not stop until everything is under their dominion. You know, Martin Niemöller is perhaps most famous for his quote, first they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. And then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. And, and then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I'm not a Jew. I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. But what is often left out is that prior to his arrest, 1937, Niemöller voted for the Nazis in 1933. He participated in right-wing and anti-Semitic political parties and organizations. He was a fervent nationalist and anti-communist. Martin Niemöller wasn't just silent, he was complicit. He just didn't think it would happen to him. What else will we tolerate? Thank you for listening. This sermon was part of the series called What Has to Die in Order for You to be Reborn. By weeding our garden, we make room for something beautiful to happen. But sacrifice takes courage and commitment. In our free online community, we've taken short clips to highlight passages from the sermon to help you explore and reflect on what these ideas might mean for you. You can join the conversation at community.mvuc.org. It's a safe place to connect and reflect with other spiritual seekers like you. It's free to join, and you will find a variety of other resources designed to help you cultivate the great work of your life. Again, that's community.mvuc.org. You may have heard other podcasts ask for a rating and review, which we certainly would welcome. It does help people find us. But we believe the best way to reach people is through word of mouth. If what you heard resonated with your life and your values, please forward this episode to a friend you think might be helped by the message. We're all in this together, and it's up to each of us to stay connected in this increasingly isolated world. 
It is a common misconception that awakening or salvation is an individual affair. The truth is, we are interwoven physically and spiritually. My joy and safety is connected to your joy and safety. It is only by coming together that we will awaken and love the hell out of this world. If you're local to Alexandria, Virginia, or if you're just visiting the area, please join us on Sunday. We offer so much more than just a sermon. It's a full body experience. You can find more information on how to visit the Mount Vernon Unitarian Church at mvuc.org. Again, thank you for listening, and please join us again soon.